Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 183 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be here with Eli Craner. And here's a little bit about Eli. Edgar, award-winning author Eli Craner, lives and writes from the banks of Lake Dardanelle, a reservoir of the Arkansas River nestled in the heart of True Grit country. His critically acclaimed debut novel, Don't Know Tough, won the Peter Lovesey First Crime Novel Contest and was named one of the best books of the year by USA Today and one of the best crime novels of 2022 by the New York Times. Eli also pens a weekly column called Where I'm Writing From for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and his craft column, Shop Talk, appears monthly at Crime Reads. Eli's newest novel, Ozark Dogs, which will be the thrust of our conversation today, is now available wherever books are sold. Hello, hello, Edgar Award-winning author. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me, Peter. Probably, doesn't get, probably don't get tired of hearing that, right? No, and I was just thinking, I think this might be the first like interview, uh, like podcast I've done since there. So yeah, it's sounds good. Oh man, it's a pleasure to have you on. You were talking a little bit before we were recording about like, you're still, you know, with winning the awards and stuff, you're, and the books came out pretty close together, right? With Don't Know Tough, like what's yeah. it been like with, you know, winning awards and, and really talking about that book. And then you have this new one that's also um, just dynamite. Like what's that like kind of? living with the new book, living with the old book, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's been, you know, you try not to, um, what's that old saying? You can't pick a favorite child. Hmm. Uh, I think it's the same with, with books. Um, and so you try not to compare them, you know, yeah. you try not yeah. like look back and say like, okay, well, what, what did this book do in its first month? And what is this book uh -huh. doing in its first month? Like you, you try not to do that stuff, but it's kind of hard um, <laughs> at the same time. And yeah, they they did come out about almost exactly a year apart. Um, wow. Which is, yeah, which is pretty quick. And especially for like with the debut, um, mm -hmm. you know, debuts are just different. And that's, that's another reason why it's not always best to compare mm -hmm. uh, because debuts get, you know, they get different sorts of things. You're, you're this guy they pulled out of a hole in Arkansas and, you know, thrust into the spotlight with the debut and every, that's interesting and shiny. Um, sure. But the, the interesting thing about these two books is they were both written, like the first draft of Don't Know Tough was finished in like 2016. Okay. And then uh, Ozark Dogs was finished in like 2017. Uh -huh. So they've both been alive for a long time and, and that was that was how they were able to to come out like they did and they they kind of work together they work in the same world um not not a sequel by any means but uh -huh. there's a couple a couple of easter eggs you know that that tie the places together um okay. but yeah it's been um i think i just I mentioned that to you before we got going that 
I've done, you know, a few things with Ozark dogs, but as soon as Don't Know Tough won the Edgar, you know, that's what everybody wanted to go back and talk about. So I'm excited to talk about Ozark dogs. <laughs> you're like that, uh, you know, you're like, I don't know, Aerosmith or something like that. And like, I was like, play, play Sweet Emotions. You're like, no, we got a new album out, you know? You yeah, yeah, that's right. right. And this that's is right. a heck of a, th there is no sophomore slump here, man. It's incredible, Rio. Looking forward to talking to you about it. Fellow athlete, I definitely you know, played hoops in my day. I don't think I had nowhere even close to the success maybe you did as a, as a quarterback. Uh, uh, the idea of, of being an athlete, I know Don't Know Tough has a lot to do with football. I wonder how how reading and athletics were parts of your life, if they were complimentary or not, you know, growing up. Yeah, man, for sure. So I attribute me being becoming a novelist to the fact that I was so much of a jock by like fourth grade my parents were both public school teachers okay. um, and so I was becoming so much of this like sports kid that my dad, the fourth grade of like my, the summer of my, like going into fifth grade, he in, like enforced this new rule that I was going to have to read 20 pages of any book that I wanted uh, each day in the summer and then I was going to have to write a page in a journal. So I didn't have to like write about the book, but I had to like write, you know, um, anything I wanted. And most of those journals started with, this is the worst day ever. I hate <laughs> writing. Uh, you know, hyperbole, right? That, yeah. And what that did for me was it made me good. It made me a good reader and a good writer because at an early age, you know, while other kids were just throwing a football or, or you know, shooting a basketball, um, I was having to at least, you know, commit an hour a day to it, like this building this routine. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I got to high school, um, I was in English class and, you know, I was one of the strongest readers and one of the strongest writers just because my dad had like kind of forced it on me. And it's just like sports, you know, if you're naturally uh, taller and, and naturally have good hand-eye coordination, you know, you, you're probably going to like basketball, you know, like, you, like you're good at it, you know, so you're probably going to like it. Sure. And so I was always a good English student. And so it led to this kind of strange double life where, you know, I became like a college quarterback, um, but I was also an English literature major. Mm. Um, and so I was always this weird combination of like bookworm slash jock. Yeah. And I, I give all credit, give all credit to my, to my pops. <laughs> That's cool. Um, what were some of those books that, you know, you might have denied it at first, but what were some of those books that you were like, man, this is, this is pretty dang good? Man, so what I really got, I remember getting hooked on were those permabound, um, like abridged classics. Mm. So if you remember those, they were like, they had like a picture in every chapter and it was yes. like Toby Dick and Frankenstein okay. and, you know, all of those classic works, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I was reading them, you know, in like middle school. And like telling people like, I've read Moby Dick, you know, like, and I could, I could follow the plot along enough, you know, to sound educated. <laughs> and, um, and I remember really liking that, like liking, feeling like I was well read. Um, Ray Bradbury was another huge mm -hmm. uh, influence early on. And then the, the magic of, of Bradbury is that, you know, you can read him as a middle school or junior high student, and then you can go back and read him, you know, however many years later in, yeah. in my mid piece um, and, and read him, you know, he, he was writing in the fifties and, and like now we're 75 years into the future and, and, um, and it's still just 
as as powerful um and then on the cheaper side i guess cheaper i don't know but i loved goosebumps like goosebumps were huge you know growing up um arkansas i guess missouri but like where the red fern grows was mm -hmm. was really good too Ooh, that one made you feel things right yeah I, yeah i think you could trace some ozark dog stuff you know back to where the red fern grows uh I was I, I meant to bring it up yesterday. I was talking to Talia Kaluri, who's written about the all the all the stories have animals as narrators. Uh, what we fed to the manticore, and I wanted to bring up because someone would remind me of the you're talking about Ray Bradbury. Um, the soft rains, the soft rains will come. There will come soft there will rain. Come soft rains with that poem inside the story, right? Yeah, like you know, based on the poem. But I was just the automated that. automated house. The automated house, right? I was just thinking about that in relation to one of her stories. I got to, I, I met Brett, Ray Bradbury and, you know, he's in his wheelchair. This is probably 2009, 2010, I think right before he passed. Um, yeah, just mad respect. I, I can't say that's necessarily my favorite genre, but like, like you said, I mean, just amazing, right? Yeah, man. And Dandelion Wine mm. is another one that I've returned to. There's a story in there called The Happiness Machine okay. that is just absolutely heart wrenching and timeless. Uh, but yeah, Bradbury from an early age and then the guy that I just returned to again and again. The story you mentioned, that's not the one that became the ice cream suit or something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, the happiness is machine is where this guy and kind of just this hick, hick town, you know, like he goes into his garage and he builds this thing that like, okay, they go and they sit down and it like can show you like New York and it can show you Paris and it can show you. Mm. And it makes everybody in this hick town so sad because they've never seen it before. Okay. So, like okay. catches fire and, and burns up, you know. And the closing scene is he's like cleaning up the mess and he like looks through his window and there's his wife and his kids like putting dinner on the table, you know, and it's this really beautiful like like metaphor for, you know, the same old thing, but uh, it's just done so well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man, awesome. Do you, um, I mean, well, I guess, do you consider yourself a Southern writer? And then if so, or if not, I mean, did you, like, what were you, who were you reading from the South? Or was that not a concern? Was that like, hey, I'm going to seek out some of these Southern writers? Or was that not necessarily a concern of yours? Yeah, definitely. I, I would consider myself, uh, I cut my teeth on Southern writers. So before crime or any of that stuff came into my, my palate, I was reading like Faulkner, um, Flannery O'Connor, of course, you know, like the big greats, the big classics. But then there was there were guys like Larry Brown. So Larry Brown was a Mississippi writer who was a fireman, not college educated, just really took this workmanlike approach, wrote real clean, simple prose. And hmm. he had a, a documentary called The Rough South of Larry Brown that I found um, when I was in college and really thinking I wanted to start writing seriously. Um, and he just laid it out, man. He just talked about, you know, how, you know, writing is no different than laying bricks, you know, that the more bricks you lay, the cleaner those rows get. And the same is true of writing sentences. You know, the more sentences you write, the cleaner they get. And, and back to Bradbury, Bradbury has this great quote, says, you're not a real writer till you've written a million words. And so like when I first got into writing, I'd just gotten out of coaching football and so like my old football coaching mindset, like I broke out, you know, like a, like a moleskin journal and started keeping up with words, you know, to like try and hit the million. 
But yeah, man. I, so beyond that, Larry Brown, Harry Cruz, uh, Jesmond Ward. Jesmond Ward had a huge impact on um, on Don't Know Tough. Um, mm. the, what what she does with voice in her novels was just something that I loved and sounded rang so true. Yeah. Um, to me. So so yeah. To answer your question, like that was where it all was. Uh, I had a great professor named Johnny Wink, who he was related at one point to a guy named Jack Butler. And Jack Butler wrote this great Mississippi novel called Jiu-Jitsu for Christ. Uh, and he also wrote Living in Little Rock with Miss Little Rock, which was like nominated for the Pulitzer back in like the 80s or early 90s. And so I got hooked up with Jack through Johnny in my college days. So I had this guy who would, I could, I was mailing stories at that point, you know, like hard copy, he'd mail them back. So I cut my teeth on all of that and that's really what I was trying to write for like the early years. I mean, it took me about six years to get like to, for Don't Know Tough to, to find its way into the door. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really ever consider myself like a crime writer until Don't Know Tough won the first crime novel contest, you know, and then, which was great because it opened up this door of all this, this genre stuff that I w- was getting to read with beginner's eyes you know and getting to see like oh okay this is how this stuff works you know this is something and i've really leaned into that yeah 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 southern writer or not you know you talk about that and how about i mean crime writer or not how does that i mean does that inform the way you write um and then just you know good writing is good writing great writing is great writing but what is it maybe that would distinguish you or mark you as a crime writer or writer of crime yeah, so that's a good question. I've really enjoyed exploring the genre and like the, the greats. And the best that I've found in crime writing is a guy by the name of Elmore Leonard. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, man, I, I've read all 42 of Dutch's novels all the way back to the to the Westerns. Um, and I would put his line by line writing up against anything. I mean, Dutch had stories that were in The New Yorker. Um, you know, we know like the six big successes that he had with like Justified, which was really just inspired by a short story. Hmm. Um, but I think what crime writing does for me is I was always, uh, I mean, if you can tell by reading, you know, my stuff, like I don't mind to go big and to go weird and to go in places, you know, Yeah. but a crime novel is it, it almost it puts up like the genre in it since in and of itself imposes these these guardrails you know that keep your story going mm. uh, and so I, I think that i've really liked that uh i know i've really liked that because i don't mind writing i, I write a lot i'm pretty i'm a fast writer um and i wasted a lot of time kind of waffling you know with stuff that never would really pan out and so the crime genre has really opened that door. Another, another thing is I, I told you I teach virtually now. Mm-hmm. So I teach English 11 and 12 to kids that are in juvenile correctional facilities all across Arkansas. And the thing I like about crime is, you know, being around those kids. And before that, I taught for five years in an ALE uh, school, which, you know, is like at-risk kids or, or kids, you know, who have any sort of like it could be mental problems, behavioral problems. So a girl who just might've got pregnant and missed a lot of class, you know, mm. um, and crime allows you to really get into 
like some social topics, you know, some stuff around like people who are committing crimes. And that's one thing, like I've just been teaching these kids in juvie, you know, for a year, but Lord, the, the thing they love to do is tell you their story, mm. you know, more than anything. And I love to hear them, you know, as a novelist, I love, I love to hear those stories. And I think a good crime novelist, a good crime writer at the heart, the thing they got to have more than anything is empathy. Mm. Um, and that's something that I really like about crime writing is being able to just show, you know, circumstances and show circumstances that people don't always understand. And, and that's been really a cool, I think both of my first two books do a, that's what I'm trying to do with them. Yeah. I appreciate that. In the, in the author's note for Ozark Dogs, it's, you know, basically saying like the older I get, the more these choices, like, you know, um, drug dealing, you know, violence, um, you know, philandering on the, you know, the wife or the husband saying like the older I get, the more these choices seem relative. Is that is a lot of that related to the work you've done? And then I guess that just goes into like, you know, your note is like this book is fiction. You know, although none of these characters is real, they could be any one of us, I think is the way you end it. But you're talking about, you know, I, could, I always felt like I could never do this. I could never cook meth. I could never cheat on my wife. I definitely wouldn't murder anyone. I wonder about these ideas of like, the choices are relative. You talked about waffling. Waffling is not the term because it has like a negative connotation, right? But like, I wonder where relativity comes in. You do talk about there are guardrails. So there's some some objectivity. But just, you know, how does that work with relativity? And how does that work, you know, fit so well with, with crime? Or I guess vice versa. How does crime make relativity, moral relativity fit so well? Well, the reason I think it works so well is because, you know, a good crime novel will hook a reader from the start. Mm. And... What I like about the new stuff I'm reading, or even somebody like Elmore Leonard, who I believe was ahead of his time, you know, there are never just good guys and bad guys, you know, and, and that goes all the way back to all great literature. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I'm saying that the older I get, I mean, there's the old, the old saying, you know, walk a mile in a man's shoes or you know, it, that's an old saying for a reason. And the reason is, is because it's true. Like, I don't, I just have come to believe that nobody can say for sure what he or she will not do um, unless they're in that situation. And so what's so nice about crime writing is you can put your characters, you can put people in the absolute worst situations mm -hmm. and you can turn the heat all the way up early and then we just get to watch how they react mm -hmm. and that's what makes it so fun i don't outline i don't plan ahead really much i was telling you before we got going that i don't research i don't like to research so <laughs> you know what i like to do is create characters that feel real to me and then put them in bad situations and then see the humanity come out the good the bad the oftentimes ugly my dad man <laughs> he's always like son when are you going to write a happy book and i'm just like you know which raises an even larger existential question because i'm a pretty happy guy and sure. my life i enjoy my life and and i often look back at these books and think damn you know is is this is this representative of my larger world view <laughs> oh man yeah jeremiah's got some got some ghosts and he's the good guy and he's the good guy right
the book starts off with there there are probably i don't know four or five throughout the book letters from joe you know joe the the girl the senior in high school 17 18 year old um writing a letter to inmate jake who we find out is her father right and this idea, and it definitely becomes a, a motif throughout the book, this the idea of the camera always watching, which is in a literal sense, right? Is this so? So Joe lives with her grandpa Jer- Jeremiah, um, at, you know, out, at the junkyard basically. Their house is right outside there, and there's you know there are always cameras, and the cameras get involved in the plot later on. And I'm really, really, really going to tiptoe around the plot spoilers <laughs> um, because people need to read this book. There's so many. I told you before we started recording, I was like, ah, you know, a couple things that surprised me or shocked me or so cool but yeah so it starts off with that and we get to know jeremiah he's got a freaking armory right yeah but it does say that his office has quote more books than weapons he decides jeremiah decides to take joe or joanna's university of arkansas admittance letter and he crushes it up in the junkyard right yeah he does know there'll probably be electronic ones to come later but you know the idea of wanting to keep her home i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about jeremiah and joe and their relationship and just how jeremiah really has her sheltered like big time yeah so i don't think this is giving anything away but you know joanna and jeremiah like the reason they're together is because of tragedy um you know jeremiah is the only person left in her life to take care of her and it's been that way since she was an infant one thing i really wanted to explore with this book being in a small town um you know if you're in a larger town um you know murders happen every day sometimes like so many murders that you don't even you don't even know like they don't even make the headlines sure if you're in a small town like my hometown is about 20 30 when that stuff happens and it's you know decades in between the aftershocks of that last for generations yeah and that was what i wanted it it feel you know because everybody knows everybody and everybody is aware of what happened and knows you know everybody knows everybody's business even if it's just small things like you know like high school football or whatever but when something that big goes down um you just people just never would get away from it and so that's what I wanted Jeremiah, you know, that's a big part of why he has kind of barricaded Joanna into this junkyard. He, he is her protector, but she's also struggling like any 17, 18 year old teenage girl, you know, she's starting to become a woman and she's well on her way to becoming a good woman and wants more freedom. Um, and so that's kind of the early tension of the book is like, she's getting ready to break out on her own. And Jeremiah knows this, but you know, what is it safe? Is it, is it, cause she, you know, she hasn't seen any of this stuff firsthand. And so that's where the book opens. And, and that's, you know, Joanna doesn't think there's anything to worry about. Not anymore. You know, all that's in the past, but like Faulkner said, you know, that's this prologue, no? yeah, that's it. <laughs> Sorry. Try to steal that one from you. Well, thank you for that. So Jeremiah, Jeremiah's got got demons, man. He um, you know, he'd fought in Vietnam, and you know this idea that he he he'd been well decorated, but you know for what? I mean, it's like he was decorated for for killing, right? And mm-hmm. he particularly thinks of that one girl 
don't know if I'm making that up that she was nine years old. I don't know if you, if you would have known that exactly, but a young girl, right? The girl with the birthmark tattoo or the birthmark, uh, the broken heart birthmark. Exactly. Right. And, you know, and, yeah. and those, those, those flashbacks come back to him and there's so much in this book that's so interesting. I mean, you explained it so well about like, you know, let's say there's 15 years between murders and thank goodness for that. But it's like you said, there's going to be just ramifications, right? Big time. Mm -hmm. And just the, just the way that you, um, you meld these stories together, these family stories together is like, dang, just like a master. And just the way <laughs> that you, you know, they're, they're melded together and then kind of slowly untangled. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so early on in the book, so Joe goes to the homecoming, you know, I, if, if Vegas has odds on who's going to win, she was, you know, she was favored to win, but she doesn't kind of the classic, like, you know, the guy who's connected in the town, his daughter just kind of yep. mysteriously, you know, she kind of mysteriously wins, of course. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's that scene that is really very vivid for me where she's like walking up the, the bleachers and he is too. And it's like, Oh God, like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see anybody. Like, what are they going to say to us? And just like ghosts and, and memories and, and so much, so much interconnectivity. Right. Yeah. His drinking, such a cool plot device that you have him. He always has like a little flask or whatever, right. Or the actual bottle, like right next to his heart yeah. along with like a million guns. Um, I wonder about, <laughs> about his drinking and like kind of where it stopped and started. Yeah. So yeah, he says, you know, when, when he took over caring for Jer uh, for Joanna, that he stopped drinking like cold Turkey. Um, but he has this really great line where it's like, he said it was never, it was never his intention to stop completely. Mm. It was always just a pause. Yeah. It was always going to be just this window in time where he was going to raise her with a steady hand. And then, you know, when, when that time was up and she was gone, he was, he knew like in his mind, he was going to go right back to it. <laughs> and, you know, lo and behold, jo Joanna, you know, which I think this is on the back of the book. So we're not, we're not giving anything away. You know, she is gone before he wants her to be gone. Mm. And um, that drinking starts again and it plays back to what you were saying, you know, with the ghosts and what he uh, had done in Vietnam. And, you know, that bottle allows him to become that man again mm. when he kind of needs to be, you know, in order to get Joanna back. Right. I, w I don't know if, you know, I think of, again, you played at a higher level of sports, but I think of like some of these athletes or you'll hear about on TV, like when they finally retire, you know, after 15, 17, 25 years of like keeping their body, the they're just like, woo, nice. They're just going to go and drink and eat, you know what I mean? <laughs> Because they're like, yeah. I, I freaking earned it. And they did, you know? No, there's no doubt. With his, sorry, I was going to say, it reminds me of him with his, you know, 18 years off. Like, I'm going to get back to it, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I can't tell you how many, like, stud running backs and guys I played ball with, uh -huh. you know, about, like, 15 years now. And we'll see each other at a reunion or something, boy. And they're they're pushing 300. And I'm like, damn. Where's that guy? You ate that guy that I was playing ball with. Right. So, you know, again, a small town intermingled and, you know, their stories definitely have um, connecting points like Mona McNabb, who's the sheriff now. And she's kind of like, I, th I think she kind of more fancies herself as like a big sister, right? But she's almost like a mother yeah. figure to, uh, to Joe. How, I'm trying to figure her age and like, how do you, how do you see her and Jeremiah? Like she's, they definitely can talk about anything. I mean, they have some very <laughs> um, high intensity, you know, conversations and encounters. But like, is she, does he, 
any romantic feelings for her? Is it more like a younger daughter? Like, I don't, how does he kind of, how do you think, how does he see her? I think I see how she sees him. Yeah, there's definitely like some, some gigging going on, you know, like, and mostly it comes from, from Mona, you know, Mona has, she's the sheriff. She's fully aware of Joanna's past and Jeremiah's past. Um, so she knows about the scars that both of them carry. Um, and so because of that, she, you know, takes Joanna out to eat as, as Joanna's growing up, she kind of takes her under her wing. So that puts her and, you know, Jeremiah in close vicinity. Um, and so, no, I always kind of see it. Like she says something, you know, like if she were from a different generation, you know, Jeremiah maybe would have been somebody, but I always kind of see it more of like a father daughter yeah. relationship, you know, like something that, that, there's love there, but but it's a different kind of love. Yeah, definitely. We also meet the 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 Ledford family. Now, is it pronounced Evale? Evale, yeah. Evale, right? And and Dime is like his cousin. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's his Christian name, his given name, but <laughs> <laughs> you never know, man. Never As know. a teacher, you know oh, yeah. that you never know. Oh yeah. You talk about like how you you have fun making like eccentric characters and kind of not off the wall that was not your words man i love the the, the eccentricities of some of these characters right so evail is his father is has become like a born again but like he's like a racist like major <laughs> like like kkk like he he believes that you know god has is pushing him in that way evail is definitely i don't i would not call it progressive i don't know that he has those feelings <laughs> right i mean I'm, I'm i'm speaking right i mean that's an understatement of the year but he's but he's like a vegetarian there's a, there's a secret that his dad talks about that I won't give away. I'm not sh quite sure that I know what it is. I think I do. Yeah. Um, but I just what a what a cool, creative, interesting, eccentric character. Later, when they get into you know they get into the Bale is smart. He might avail himself of his brain. Sorry, I had to. And you know, and he like you know he starts talking with like the Mexican cartels and they, you know where they can get the I'm like pseudo pseudofenedrin right the pseudofed type of thing right yeah. And, you know, so he's smart about it. So he had, he links up and I want to say, I'm having total brain free. Guillermo, is that his name? Yeah. Guillermo, you know, he's a freaking tough guy and he has guys, he's got a little blow pop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, so like character choices like that, like, did you just like, man, this is just freak. I want to have some fun with this. Or was this like, were you going for something? You know what I mean? Uh, I think that's just always, man. I mean, this is going to sound opposite but yeah, that's real life you know like sure, the sure. guys are not always you know big muscled up guys with with uh -huh. guns you know like they might have a blow popper i don't know i <laughs> I, I don't know I, I think maybe that comes from you know my experience with those great southern writers and and like especially someone like flannery o'connor you know like there was always a character with uh you know, like one of my favorite short stories for with her is the lame shall enter first mm. and there's this character who has this big club foot you know and and I, I don't know like so many stuff that i read so much stuff that i read like every everything's kind of stock you know like it's yeah, all the yeah, same. yeah and so it's a good way you know even the names are a good like if you see the name like eval mm -hmm. um, you're not going to confuse that every time his name is mentioned you're going to know who i'm talking about oh yeah oh yeah and i think that's pretty pretty true for all the characters you know in this book like they all 
kind of carry these. This might have been a um, God, the name I'm losing the name. The guy who wrote um, the Graveyard Book and the guy who wrote American Gods. Um, Neil Gaiman. Yeah, yeah. He had this great quote about like, give your characters funny hats. Um, <laughs> And what he meant was like that same thing I'm talking about, like give them memorable things yeah. so that like readers aren't going back and looking, you know, five pages. Yeah. But, but beyond that, I, I really, I don't know, you know, like I didn't want to do a story because yeah, like, like Bun is who is Evel's dad. Or you, you summed it up perfectly, you know, it's like this born again, but like running this really like, fledgling mm -hmm. kkk faction you know in yeah. these hills because like i don't know like i just kind of felt like like that was a fitting like with everything we see on the news like i don't know like it didn't feel like that would be what's really booming you know mm -hmm. like what what's but something like what evel's trying to do you know where he's like like a good word was progressive yeah like he says he's, he has a shaved head but he's not a skinhead it's something right. that he read in a book about like Taoism, like buddhist huh. monks like you know, so he's, he's got these weird, these weird things and he's not afraid to, to go across like the racial lines, you know, and team up with the cartel. It's beautiful, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, just, I didn't want it to be the same old shit. Like that yeah. was, you know. Oh, so distinctive. And, and because of that, so, such, such great characters and such a great read, you know, with like the KKK, like you said, like fledgling is, you know, is definitely the way to describe it. Is that kind of like a pointing the finger like you like was that is that like i don't know satire is that kind of like more so like a parody or is that just a plot thing you know what i mean is that kind of like making a statement i don't know if making a statement is i, I was doing this deal in baltimore laura Littman was kind enough to meet me at her bookstore and we did a book event for this and she said something that i thought was so i loved it about this book she just said you know, this is a book about white supremacists and all of this stuff that feels ripped from the headlines. And she was like, but like, it doesn't feel political. Like, it doesn't feel like there's like a message. It doesn't feel. And of course, you know, like, I'm not like, <laughs> I'm not sitting here saying like, yeah, like, I'm, I mean, yeah, I would love to poke a finger at the KKK. But, you know, I always feel like when that gets done in fiction, um, I, I fall away. I, as a reader, fall away from the story. Like it, it doesn't always draw me in because it doesn't feel real. It's like contrived. People yeah. People aren't walking around with like cardboard boxes over their chest that say, here are my political beliefs, you know, and here's how I feel on top, this topic, that topic, this mm -hmm. topic. So I wanted to write about these things that were current, but I also wanted to make it timeless. Like I said, the book was finished in 2017, yeah. you know, so 2017 is a world away from 2023. Yeah. Uh, and that could have really backfired um, if I were trying to like lace this book with so many, you know, like pointed messages or pointed mm -hmm. things. To say. And I think that's something to remember for all novelists, you know, if, if what you want to do is write stuff that hangs around, mm. uh, your, your stuff has to be, it, it can still say something. And I think Ozark Dog says something, um, but it's not, it doesn't have to be so on the nose. I appreciate that. I mean, when I think of like a book, you know, being too, uh, 
whatever the opposite, I mean, timely or not being timeless. Yeah. I think of it as like, oh, you know, they're like the technology they're using or whatever. It doesn't fit, you know, it's an anachronism yeah. and that kind of thing. But that makes a lot of sense that like, if it's a political thing or whatever the latest, you know, flavor of the day is, that's something that takes away from the timelessness. I, I appreciate that. That makes sense. Especially in the yeah. context of your book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and well, I, I do think sometimes, you know, true masterpieces can do that. Mm-hmm. And like, like I think about like back to Bradbury, like Fahrenheit 451 mm-hmm. and how that book definitely had a message. I'm not familiar enough with the time. I mean, I think it was the fifties, you know, when it was being written to know like how on the nose or not it was for sure. that, that zeitgeist. But, but I know that it has lasted. So it's like, mm. it's kind of like knowing your boundaries, you know, like if, if as a writer, you know that you've got your thumb on the current pulse, Mm-hmm. know that like you're going to really swing for this and try and say some shit that's going to really stick then go for it you know and if yeah. you don't then just try and create real characters or mm. or give a character a blow pop <laughs> oh man what a flavor you know <laughs> any and all uh, great <laughs> great there you go all right so yeah w- you know without stepping on the the toes of the plot spoilers but you know, so Colt, who's the quarterback, and he's the he's the homecoming date, or yeah, he's the date for for Joe. He gets really much, definitely involved. He's been living with the coach, and he definitely you know has connections with the Ledford family we talked about earlier. You know, so so Rudnick or Rudnick, Rudnick, right? So Rudnick also was somebody who he, he was killed. You know, he's you know part of the traumas of that family as well, right? And there's obviously a lot connected to it, and. Like I said, it's when you talk about this small town and being so many years between murders and that type of thing, it's like it does seem like it happened just yesterday, but it was eighteen years ago or twelve or you know. Belladonna. I mean, what a, Bella, again, again, Belladonna. Belladonna again. What a great name. So you know, what beautiful woman, Belladonna. Yeah, Belladonna. What I again, she doesn't fit, <laughs> right? I mean, she she's not like um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a you know, like she's not like the 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 maniacal mom or something like that. She's does some nice things and generous things. And you're kind of like, why is she with Bun? You know, why is she with the father? Yeah. But what um what was kind of her inspiration, an inspiration for her? I guess the same thing like what we've been saying. You know, you you look at a stereotype or you look at a trope and you think, you know, okay, here's the wife of this guy running this KKK faction with this whole like meth ring. Um but she's a sweetheart. <laughs> but she's a sweetheart. Like she's still a mom. Like she's still, um, you know, provides for her family. And it goes back to what we were talking about with like circumstances. And and again, it goes back to everything that we've been talking about. You know, like that's one thing I also notice in a lot of current crime fiction is like a lot of the times like a, characters become so predictable based on who they are or what, like it's the same character recycled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know that I know, I don't know any white supremacists or any, any Belladonna's out there in the world, but you know, I do know women who are in really tough situations um, who are, who are anchored to men, you know, that are, that are like Bun or Evel or any of these other guys in the book who still find ways to, you know, be a mother and still find ways to, you know, love their children and, and support their husbands, you know, because that's their lot in life. Um, so I think that's where, you know, Bella, she, she's one of my favorite 
favorite characters in the book. Hmm. We we do eventually get to meet Joe's mom. Speaking of favorite characters, L- Lacey might be like she might yeah. take. Yeah. Yeah. She's pretty. She's pretty quick witted, despite you know the drugs. Despite the drugs, she's got some pretty quick some 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 nice quips. Yeah. Right, but she definitely gets involved later, and and um, just kind of you know ideas of like, would would Joe been better off without her? What is she better off without her? You know, who's doing who a favor? That are just very interesting as the, as the book goes on. You know, we we get the the drug dealing you know definitely fires up to be sure there's a lot of action that comes with that there's some great chase scenes man you know that are very much tied into you know the creeks in in parts of arkansas and the ozarks and very much you know anchored pardon the pun in you know the water and the place People who are listening have got to read this because I'm like, ah, I want to talk about something more plot things, <laughs> uh, you know, but I'm kind of like, okay, here's maybe a good place to kind of leave off with that. The video is always watching. That's one of those motifs that, that comes up again and again. And there's a lot of revelations that come from that. We talked about redemption. You know, Jeremiah has, you know, he has a, he has a kill list. I mean, he's called the judge. His, his truck was called the judge, you know, kind of like the judge and the executioner. Does he see redemption for himself? Is it redemption for himself or is it for his... Is it for Joe and, and and through that his kind of like his family line and his heritage and his son? Yeah. I think, okay, Jeremiah, there's a scene in this um like this non-denominational mm. church called Christ Zone, um, which in the book it's described as like a it's a great name, by the way, too. <laughs> yeah, Christ Zone. It's and it's um it's like a renovated Walmart. Like they've pulled out the cash registers and put in a, a pews and you know an, an author and and he's talking to the, the pastor there an ex-football coach and he's talking about god and jesus and the second coming and how you know that if he were jesus and you know he had died for all these people and sacrificed for the world mm. he watched them do all the shit that they've done in the meantime and then when it's the day of reckoning, you know, the Bible says, you know, Jesus is, you know, with blue eyes of fire and, and a sword, you know, he will come and, and have a, you know, that, um, that Jeremiah says in the book, he says, you know, that there's almost like some sort of, I don't know if joy is the right word, but there's some yeah. sort of that Jesus would have some sort of vengeance in his heart, you know, for, mm-hmm. for the sacrifice he made and everything. That, and so I think that's all a really extrapolated metaphor for what Jeremiah has done in the war, mm-hmm. for what he's trying to do with those 18 years of sobriety, mm-hmm. and then what he's forced to do when Joanna goes missing. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Got a little bit of Liam Neeson in him, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a very particular set yeah. of skills. A backwoods taken. That would have been yeah. a good. Yeah, that would have been a good. <laughs> That'll be on the movie poster. Huh? That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, With Liam Neeson in the role. Although I've always pictured Jeff Bridges. I felt like Jeff Bridges. Ooh, that would be good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely. Oh, man. 
There's, um, you know, Hattie, who would be Joe's grandma and Jeremiah's wife, is not, I mean, she's not mentioned a lot. She passed on years before, but there's some really important scenes with her flashbacks. And there's like, there's that symbol of the rose, right? They're like, it's kind of like the, what the Tupac thing of like, uh, uh, the rose that grew from concrete, right? Yeah. Like he, was, he was basically watering it with whiskey. Great reference. Yeah. It's the only thing in the junkyard left. Like she planted them before mm -hmm. she passed. And Jeremiah, that little bottle that he always keeps, and he has multiple bottles. When he walks in from work each night, he dumps a little on those roses. Mm -hmm. They've still grown. Yeah, right. And just like the next generation, and you know, and Joe being being part of that. And there's the scene where where Jeremiah looks at that hole in the in the chain yeah. fence, which you know had huge, 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 huge implications. There's a lot of butterfly effect there, and all that. That scene was really, um, really vivid and really incredible for me. Just like, damn, like. How much of a domino effect it was, right? Yeah. And then there it is, 18 years later, it's, it's still there, right? Yeah. In the uh, in one of the letters that uh that Joe writes to her dad in jail, she basically is like talking about the dogs. And you know, there are literally junkyard dogs that that are you know patrolling. Um, but she says basically, quote, some dogs you gotta keep locked up, is you know, what kind of one of those things she learned in her young life. I don't know that that is, you know, I don't know if you want to talk directly about that part or just about the title, like, um, you know, Ozark dogs, like they, the dogs are not a huge, they're not, they don't get, you know, half the book as far as pages, but they're definitely yeah. mentioned there's a lot going on. What, um, what are you trying to go with that? And I don't, I don't want to have to like, I don't want you to have to nail it down if you don't want to like, you know, well, this exactly means, you know, if you want to leave it up to the reader, that's fine. But just the title, I wonder about the significance of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first off the book was, so don't know tough was always don't know tough. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in like the first chapter I wrote of that book. It was a phrase that it was said like that you don't know tough. And I just shortened it to don't know tough and nobody ever questioned it. <laughs> this book was titled originally it was titled junkyard dogs, which was okay. cliche. Okay. Uh, then it was salvation, which was also cliche, but mm -hmm. I liked that it tied it to like the salvage yard. Mm -hmm. Then I came up with some die crushed. I guess I was going on like the, the um the the three word title of don't know tough some die crushed mm. and it was a good buddy of mine a guy by the name of alex taylor um who's an author in kentucky and has the absolute best collection of short stories i would put it up there with anything it's called the wow. name of the yeah the name of the nearest river okay is his collection of short stories he's got some novels he's got some recent novels published in france but alex read an early draft of this he i will attribute anything i got right with like jeremiah and the vietnam stuff um and also a lot of evel's quirks come mm. from alex's notes um oh, nice. alex was close to some vietnam vets and was able to provide some really some really interesting details but i think he said it as a joke I think, you know, this was, like I said, like 2017, maybe 2018 by the time he got his hands on it. So that Ozark Netflix series was really hot. And he said it as oh, like yeah. a joke, you know, he's like, what if you titled it Ozark Dogs? You know, like, huh. like, it's like the most like, you know, cliche kind of. So when all of this title talk was coming around with my publisher, um, I told them that title. I gave them a list of all those titles I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And they were just like, oh, it is absolutely Ozark Dogs. Like, that's oh, exactly. Man. But I, I do, I do, I, I was willing to go with it because the dogs, 
the dogs are representative of poverty, you know, mm. poverty, the cycle of poverty, the cycle of violence, um, where we live, we find strays all the time, you know, that have been cast aside. Uh, we'll find them tied to trees, you know, out here, not, not hanging, but like just left yeah. for dead on the highway. And so, um, I wanted that to play as a, as a metaphor throughout the whole book, you know, for people who maybe are not familiar with this part of the country, you know, if you look at any of the list in terms of your teen pregnancy or worse schools or whatever, you know, Arkansas is either at the top or the bottom of all those lists, whichever, you know, we're usually right ahead or right behind Mississippi. Hmm. And so that was, that's the whole point, you know, that, that's what I've, the students that I teach, the, the, the kids that I've been around with on the football field or in classrooms, their stories and, and growing up as a, as a, as a child of public school teachers and, you know, going to trailers and taking kids out. My parents would take kids out, you know, for supper and take them to the movies. And hmm. um, so I was always around kids who live lives that were, very different from mine and i always would lean in you know when they'd start talking and so yeah i think the dog metaphor and it plays really heavy in that note you read which is joe's last note that that is representative of of these people mm, wow very interesting i was definitely thinking reservation dogs have you seen that series yeah man i yeah. I, I keep meaning to watch more because what i've seen is like so good man yeah the so reservoir dogs too right oh, of course you know, this is just the beginning. Like you said, I, whether I'm the first or the seventh, I feel incredibly lucky to have talked to you about this book. Yeah, uh, I can't wait for the third and the fourth and the fifth. You can, speaking of the fifth, you can plead the fifth if you want, but any ideas about future ones? <laughs> Maybe part of you is just like, man, I'm going to chill. No, no, we're under contract for the, the third book. Is, okay. It comes out summer of 2024, and it is called Broiler. Um, so Broiler, and it is about, two desperate couples who um it plays out over the course of two days in an arkansas chicken processing plant mm. so um yeah broiler that's you know like a chicken like what uh, they uh-huh. yeah oh wow yeah um you know like i said in, in reading the book it's just like okay this guy he has it figured out i mean <laughs> the way that everything unfurls the characters, you know, the eccentricities and quirks, um, so memorable. We didn't necessarily even talk a lot about. There's so much there about capitalism is too vague of a term, but you know, like the the big companies leaving, right? Yeah. And what's what's left in their wake. I mean, you talked about what the poverty and everything like that. Yeah, so, so much. And you know, like I said, I think I mean this this book would not have been as good if it had a heavy hand and it was didactic and it was you know yeah. preaching the moral relativities. And if you want to look at it as just an action piece action book the the, the storyline is just incredible then you throw in all those cool themes congrats that instant classic and and i hope that um you know you you're able to enjoy all this time after the edgar and and this book coming out and it's, it's mostly fun i know it's busy but i hope it's mostly fun yeah man well you know one teacher to another summer summer is coming um so yeah brother there's there's some good days the the, the nuclear um power plant plays a big part in ozark dogs mm -hmm. and and we live right here on the lake that was built for this damn nuclear tower. Like right, it's oh, wow. two miles down down the. We're on the Arkansas River, but it was all dammed up for this cooling tower. Okay, uh, so it's literally right here in our backyard. But 
we don't have to look at it. And if I ever, if I turn the lights out and I start glowing green, um, you'll know why. But I say that to just say that, yeah, there's some days on the lake that are coming for the summer. I have to put this, put this oh, stuff. On. That's awesome. Well, heck of a yeah. muse, heck of a muse to write about, right? With that, with the, the oh, powers. Man. And, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the thing that like, I mean, they're like t-shirts from like our hometown that have like a big, like power, like the cooling tower, you know, like yeah. in, the book, in the book, Joanna calls it the cloud maker. And that, exactly. that came from my kids. They, they see it and it's, you know, pumping all that steam. And, um, it's, it's definitely something. I don't know what, Man. but it's, it's a good, a good way. To, it's a good place to have the climax of a, uh, Vietnam sniper novel. <laughs> Seriously. Like I said, such a pleasure. So much enjoyed talking to you. And, you know, hopefully maybe meet you in real life down the road and, or talk to you about the next one. And congrats. And, and thanks again for your time. Thanks for having me, Peter. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much to Eli. And thank you to you for listening to episode 183 with Eli Craner. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1, the digit one. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, the Chills at Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills of Will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, the DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. If you haven't already, please pass on word of the Chills of Will podcast to a friend, to a fellow reader. I would really appreciate it. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental Version, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 184 with Robert O'Tone. Robert is the Bram Stoker Award-nominated author of The Triangle. He's also the author of the much-anticipated The Vile Thing We Created, which is out as of April 18th. We talked about Seinfeld, The Godfather Part 2, Cream Cheese, and many other serious topics as well. It's a can't-miss episode. This episode airs on May 23rd. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Eli Craner, whose work, like Ozark Dogs, gives you chills at will. Mm -hmm.